My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour again is Jay Parsons. Uh, Jay, introduce yourself to the audience and to me. Who are you? What's your background? What have you done throughout your career? And what are you doing currently? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And uh, my name's Jay Parsons, as you said. I've been uh, kind of stumbled into rental housing research 15 years ago and uh, currently lead the economics and industry principal teams for, for, for RealPage. And so, so, again, thanks for having me. All right. So I'm going to make the assumption that the last three years have been maybe more exciting than usual when it comes to looking at some of the data on the apartment and rental side of things. Uh, first of all, just lay out some some context for the audience as far as where rental demand currently sits and how do current dynamics uh, look relative to history? Sure. Yeah, it's really yeah the last four years, really, since COVID, it's been uh, a bit of a roller coaster. And so, 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 so looking at where we are now, um, I think it's important to kind of briefly just recap where we've been. So, you know, you go back to COVID, obviously we had this brief, you know, uh, shutdown. We, we had a period where there was very little demand and then, uh, get into, you know, second half of 20, but especially in 21, we saw, uh, enormous demand. We never saw anything like it. In fact, I think 2021 is a great example of, of why. It's a myth to the, that uh, rental demand suffers when homes are selling. It's it's uh, they're directly correlated, and that was a good year for all types of uh, demand for all types of housing. We had fifty percent more demand in twenty twenty one because of net leasing, net absorption than any other year in the three plus decades we've tracked the market. Twenty two peak inflation, everything slows down for all types of housing, and then twenty three we saw kind of I think the beginnings of some normalization, really good demand. And here we are in 24, and uh, we've seen, you know, kind of so far a continued pattern of, you know, solid demand, you know, actually really, I would say strong demand in most parts of the country, but but even more supply. And as we'll get into, I think that's that's really the story of the apartment market right now. How much of rental demand is driven by demographic younger people versus mortgage rates? Yeah, it's it's really all about, let me just reverse that a little bit. It, there, there's very little correlation to mortgage rates and home prices. You know, it, it's really more about uh, demographics, jobs, consumer confidence, you know, migration, population. You know, one of the things that we see particularly correlated with with, with demand for apartments is the population of young adults in any given metro area. So we have growth in the you know 20s and 30s population. That tends to be a big driver for apartments, as you'd expect. Right. I think that's kind of the, the, the key thing, right? So we, the, the term metro, right? So uh, I'm going to make the assumption that obviously rental demand is going to be highest in more cities as opposed to more suburban areas where there's going to be less of that, that migration dynamic. Yeah, it certainly depends on the, on the market and the metro area. You know, there's, there's been, you know, the suburbs have, have, have also done, you know, really, really well. And, and, you know, we've seen, you know, I, 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 I think it's changed the last couple of decades where we've seen, it, uh, you know, strong, strong demand for apartments in, in, in both urban and suburban. Okay, so you've got strong demand. I think everyone feels the, the pain of higher rent prices in general. Uh, but you, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, uh, and this is part of your notes to me, that at the same time, apartment supply is at 50-year highs. Um, I thought that uh, more demand and more supply would kind of balance each other out and prices still keep rising. So explain, explain what's going on on the supply side. Yeah. So if you go back a few years again and, you know, we had this record demand coming out of COVID for apartments. We all had cheap debt in that period of time, obviously, too. And then there was another phenomenon where a little more technically we had cap rate compression across all asset classes. So in the simplest terms, what that means is that for investors who are buying apartments and we saw more investors coming into the multifamily spot, uh, multifamily market coming out of the office sector, 
you know, they were paying, typically you would uh, see a pretty good discount to buy older, what we call class C apartments that are, you know, typically a few decades old. And we saw a lot of compression in those values between the new and the older assets. And that drove a lot of capital into new construction, seeing, you know, better value in that segment of the market. And so all of those things combined, you know, led to this, you know, really a, a generational wave in apartment construction, unlike anything we've seen since the 1970s. So more than a million units under construction at that peak. And, and so in, 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 in return, in return, what we've seen is that again, demand's been good. There's really not a demand issue at all in most of the country, but there's even more supply. And so I think what we're seeing now is the impact of when we actually build a lot of supply, you know, rent, rent, rents, that puts a lot of downward pressure on rents because there's more vacancy. And so there's been a remarkably clear correlation between the markets adding, you know, the most supply at the fastest rates. And the markets that are cutting rents. In addition to the the building of the supply, are, are there are these dynamics where there's like repurposing? Uh, I'm thinking in terms of you know various commercial real estate maybe getting repurposed into more traditional housing rental type of properties. Yeah, great topic. You know, this one comes up a lot. You know, particularly you know the policymakers love these conversions. Reporters like to, to talk about this topic as well. It's a really good topic. The the problem, though, is it's it's really not moving the needle in a substantial way. I mean, it's a relatively small number of buildings that, you know, first of all, even qualify for a conversion because most, you know, office buildings in particular are, are really not built to be uh, converted to residential. They're either, you know, too wide uh, or it's just too expensive to make that conversion. I mean, think about like a lot of office buildings there, we call, you know, the floor plate, which is the width of the building is just too big. And so you'd have long and narrow units and they just don't really make sense for residential. Plus, there's all the costs of, you know, rewiring buildings that you know may have had one bathroom on a floor to all of a sudden need to drill through concrete to put bathrooms and across the floor. And so it's enormously expensive. And there's HVAC costs, everything else, electrical as well. So there's there's there, those projects tend to be very cool and they do happen. Uh, in the big picture, it's really a rounding error in terms of total supply right now. All right. So, so you had mentioned that you've got all this supply that should exert downward pressure. Um, I think the only pushback there might be, well, if the if the supply is more concentrated among fewer and fewer owners of that supply, there's uh, some uh, oligopoly or monopoly type of dynamics in terms of pricing because you don't have to compete as much. Does the does the makeup of the ownership of uh, rental when you, and I know this is a sweeping type of statement, but does the, does the makeup of the ownership impact the likelihood of prices dropping as opposed to just going up more slowly? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fair question. And, and really, there's no evidence of that. You know, it is, I think, a popular, you know, kind of idea, but there's really been no evidence to support it. I mean, even you look at, you know, for instance, the markets that are the most expensive in the U.S., which are, you know, New York City and San Francisco, you know, these are markets that are you know, the vast majority of rentals are owned by by what we call mom and pops, you know, smaller family businesses that have been around for, you know, buildings have been around for decades and have, you know, very, very small share of the market that is is is, is owned by larger groups. I mean, they're very fragmented. And then so it's it's really not so much about that so much as it is about, you know, the basics of supply and demand. And so you look at some of the markets that are seeing the most rent growth right now. They're smaller markets where, you know, institutional investors really don't have a presence at all. You know, we're seeing, you know, places like, you know, upstate New York and smaller markets in the Midwest that are still seeing 5% plus rent growth. And so, yeah, there's there's really just not much correlation at all between ownership types. And, and also, too, I'd point out that in really all parts of the country, 
you know, and multi multifamily and really all types of housing is 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 much more fragmented than people probably think in terms of ownership. How do regional tax rates impact uh, some of those dynamics? So I'm, I'm making the assumption that some people are probably moving to other parts of the uh, U.S. where uh, there's more favorable tax treatment. And in order to do that, they probably rent first before they consider buying. Is, is that a factor at all in some of these kind of broader pressure? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, broadly speaking, when you look at just general migration patterns, you know, you see a lot of growth in, 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 in you know, Texas and Florida and, and Tennessee and, you know, Carolinas. You know, it's not just the taxes, but also the, you know, general cost of living is much cheaper. And in fact, you know, I'll give you another kind of stat. You know, there's a lot of focus on, you know, rents that, that grew faster over the last uh, few years prior to 23 and these, you know, cheaper Sunbelt markets. But in most of these spots, you know, again, you know, the, 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 the Texas's, the Florida's, the Carolinas, et cetera, you know, these markets are generally still about in terms of renting an apartment are still about half of the average rent of living in a major coastal city. So there's still a major affordability advantage that is continuing to, you know, I think, you know, keep that kind of inbound migration train going and it'll likely be a driver into the next cycle as well. At what point do you think that that flips. I mean, you said that mortgage rates don't really impact things on that end, but there is, you know, you always yeah. see these ratios of rentals versus, you know, owning a home, right? And if it gets yeah. too far out of whack, then that's a turning point in a cycle. Talk talk through that, because I think that's where this gets to be interesting in terms of how it interacts with macro and, you know, Fed policy. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. Yeah, well, I think first and foremost, you know, you know, us data nerds and economists like to think about things as, as like, you know, renting versus owning and the cost. And, you know, in reality is people don't sit on a kitchen table and with a calculator or and kind of figure out, OK, is it is it is it cheaper to rent or buy? Uh, I think first and foremost, you know, there's a lot of other factors involved, like, you know, just lifestyle, the life stage. And and so that that that's a big deal now. So, for example, like one thing we know is a driver to to single family homes are, you know, marriage and and having kids and people are waiting longer these days. And so that's extended the kind of prime apartment renting age group. Now, I think in a lot of cases what you'll see, and I know the publicly traded REITs get asked this a lot. And, you know, they'll report on, you know, reduced loss of renters to home purchase. But it's a little bit of a misleading stat. And I really don't think it's much of a driver because. People who are, you know, for example, having a kid, I mean, most apartments are not built for for children, especially those that are, you know, kind of newer market rate apartments. And so those folks, if they're not buying a house, they're probably going to rent a single family home for that life stage instead. So, you know, I, I, there's kind of other parts of your question, how it impacts Fed policy when I, we, we get into inflation and, you know, its role in CPI. But I think I think just at a high level, though, uh, you know, what's happening right now is maybe keeping folks in in a you know some folks in a renting stage for longer, but I think also when you look historically, you know we tend to see. I mentioned this earlier. There's more rental demand in periods where there's more home sales, and I think that's because of the you know we tend to see five faster household formation in periods where homes are selling as well. Like even in the mid 2000s, the height of the the housing bubble, 
we saw great demand for rentals. And so I even tell apartment and single family rental owners all the time. I said, hey, look, you should be rooting for a strong for sale housing market because when home sales are when the when the for sale housing market is healthy and strong and right now it's obviously you know we're 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 just not seeing a lot of you know sales and people aren't moving and people aren't and there's the home purchases are down you know when but historically when when those numbers are healthier uh, we see we see better demand so uh, so it's, I have a little bit of, I guess, a contrarian view on that, but I think that you know historically it's pretty clear that in a that these these two sectors are more correlated than they are competitive. So I'm going through some of your posts as as we're chatting here and and noting the one here on 30th January where you make the point that it's not really a renter nation, which you often hear as sort of this kind of yeah tagline, right? So and listen, I mean I've used that term, term myself, and maybe it's just because I myself am kind of falling to the narrative, but. Are we really not a renter nation? Are we not in that sort of direction where increasingly it's just, you know, a couple of asset owners and everybody else is just renting from them? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think that I, I think people, you know, you could always find a data point to sort of support a point of view. But I think in, as it relates to the question of where you're in our nation, well, if we are the majority, that would suggest the majority of our people are renters. That's not true in the U.S. It would also suggest that maybe we're rapidly moving in the other direction. That's also not true. And I think probably one of the greatest stats that people just don't realize in our country is that homeownership has actually been going up over these last few years and actually been trending upwards, you know, consistently since I think 2016, 2017. And so, and so it's just not really happening. Now, obviously long-term, if mortgage rates remain high, home prices remain really high, you know, that can definitely change the equation. But you look back over these past seven or eight years, I think one of the great untold stories of the economy is the resiliency of the home buyer. Now, now bear in mind, I'm talking about the actual home buyers, not those who aren't able to buy a home, because unfortunately, there are a lot of those folks, and that is a real challenge. I'm, I think there's, I don't want to take the spot, the the focus away from that, but at the same time, you know, you look at the numbers here, and and you know, individual home buyers have looking at this is U.S. Census data, is not my data. This is census data have, you know, one more market share over investors over these last seven or eight years. And so, you know, that that's that's I mean, the data is what it is. And it's pointing to the exact opposite of a, of a, of a renter nation and more to one of a very resilient consumer. How much of that resiliency is just because of credit availability as opposed to strong starting point? Right. I think that's sort of the the question mark, which then dovetails into the Fed. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously the 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 the, the strong credit availability and low rates of the previous cycle really helped with that, right? And 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 I think I think one of the kind of the important variables to watch, and we saw this with Senator Warren's letter to the to the Fed board recently, is just the impact of higher rates on individual, you know, would be home home buyers. And uh, I think that's one thing that kind of gets lost in the equation is that while it's not part of the Fed's mandate, as the as Chairman Powell likes to likes to remind folks, uh, I'm sure it's something they have to be thinking about. I mean, they're humans, and and that 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 is probably you know one uh, kind of supporting reason why there's going to be continued pressure on the Fed to uh, reduce rates somewhat because we are. I mean, America, especially you compare it to. Other parts of the world, like Europe, America is uh, a nation of homeowners. It's not a nation of renters. And, you know, we still call the American dream owning a home. And, you know, more than two thirds of Americans or I should say around two thirds of Americans are homeowners, are households, I should say, are homeowners. And so that that's going to continue, I think, to put some 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 downward pressure on 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 policymakers for as it relates to rates. What about in terms of just sort of profitability of of owning and then renting out to somebody else. So there's a there's a comment for somebody who 
he was going to come up, but he's, uh, I guess, on a few other calls, he messaged me saying, uh, over the past four years, he's encountered more damage to his rental properties than ever before with rising yeah. zero costs. It's crushing him, right? And then we know, obviously, insurance, property insurance prices have been rising steadily. So is there a squeeze maybe happening relative to those rental prices for the owners of those rental properties? Yeah, you know, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack in that question. You know, I think. I think first of all, you know, just 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 more broadly speaking, is we're we're in a year 2023, 24. You know, we're we're entering a period where a lot of a lot of rental housing owners, you know, both multifamily and single family rentals, you know, some of them are going to see more expense growth than they will rent growth, and I think that's going to be pretty common across a big part of the country. And and we're you know, it's 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 partly just due to the fact that. You know, the the there's some expenses that are that are more kind of lagged from from what we saw with the you know, inf- inflationary run up. I mean, things like insurance are still going up, you know, maybe not as much this year as last year. But those insurance bills this year are still going to be quite significant property taxes in many parts of the country. You know, marketing costs, you have more vacancy, you're spending more on advertising. So, you know, payroll has still been going up. So all of that maintenance costs, all of these things are significant at the same times that rents have, have flattened or gone negative in most of the country. And so that that that's going to be a little bit of pain. So, though, you know, bear in mind for owners who've been around for, you know, three, four, five plus years for the same property is they also benefit on the other side of this, too, where revenues are going faster than expenses in, in 21 and 22. And so, you know, you have to. Yeah. So it's not so in some ways that is balancing it out. We're kind of seeing some, you know, kind of catch up there. But uh, for those who may bought at peak and didn't benefit from that run up, I mean, they could be in a different scenario now. Specific to the question, you know, there's also cases where uh, I think more specifically in certain markets where, you know, properties have have, you know, where you have some disrepair issues, you know, that 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 creates other challenges as well, especially when you have you know limitations on how much you could you, know, you could push rent. And so, you know, anecdotally, we've seen, you know, some of those stories making the news, especially in, you know, certain coastal markets that are, you know, that 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 have you know, some other challenges going on. But I think the bigger issue for most of the country is, again, just the fact that or most uh, property owners right now is the fact that, again, expenses are just growing faster than revenues in most in, in many, many cases. Yeah, and all that, I'm, I'm sure it contributes to your observation that the Midwest is having its, its moment to shine from a rental demand and, and pricing power perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So this has been, you know, I, I posted on this recently. It's kind of the story of the tortoise and the hare. And, and you know, and in the real estate world, no matter what type of real estate you're in, you know, the Midwest is, is, is the, is always been the kind of the tortoise. It's the, it's the slow and steady. It's, it's never super hot. It's never super cold. You know, on the flip side, I mean, you look at, you know, like the big coastal cities like New York and San Francisco. I mean, those tend to be either super hot or super cold. And in the middle, you got, you know, the, the, you know, the big sunbelt markets, which have, have saw a, a, a big run up and, and then had a lot of construction. So they've cooled off significantly of late. So, you know, with the Midwest, you know, they, they didn't really cut rents and COVID is set pretty flat. But then in the kind of inflationary period of 21, early 22, you know, they still saw a big pop in rents, but it wasn't near the 15% national average. And then, you know, now what we've seen is that, you know, they've kind of normalized back in that, you know, two, three, four percent range for the most part, while much of the rest of the country has gone flat to negative. And so, so yeah, I think it's, you know, for anybody who's a, 
commercial real estate or housing investor, I think that it kind of it kind of makes the case for, you know, some geographic diversification in the national or regional portfolio. We have markets like that that are, you know, just just more your, your steady eddies. They're much more lower supplied markets as well. So you don't have the same dynamics or renters suddenly have this massive influx of options. And and, you know, you know, long term, they're not going to be big outperformers, but there's something to be said for the slow and steady. Other than the obvious answer of just building more supply. Yeah. What ends up being sort of a, a catalyst for a downturn, like a real, you know, broad-based systemic downturn yeah. in, in rentals? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so, so it's interesting because that, that's a good question because right now is, is I think a lot of people don't fully appreciate this moment. I mean, this is the first time in 40 plus years where we've seen, you know, uh, enough supply to really, really move the needle on 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 multifamily vacancy and rents because there's just again so much supply and in the past few couple of decades I would argue that the supply really wasn't that significant it looked that it might have looked significant on a chart that was cropped you know since the you know 1990s or something but it really wasn't that significant in the big picture now when you look at you know past downturns it's really simple I mean the the, the rental housing is not a complicated business it's 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 really, it's all about demand and all about supply. So it's supply and demand. And you look at, you know, the past downturns, they've been correlated to recessions. You know, we had a brief one in 2020. Uh, we had a big one in 2008, 2009 that took some markets multiple years to recover from the early 2000s tech bust, you know, the, uh, and so it's really, it's, you know, the, the biggest risk I think for the rental housing space is we're adding all this supply. And then if we do hit a recession, so you take out a lot of the demand at the same time there's peak supply, you know, that's when you really have, you know, big challenges for, 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 for rental housing operators. Right. So it's basically the double whammy of the timing hitting kind of all at yeah. once. Now, is there, is there any evidence to suggest that there's a, there's a leading indicator aspect when it comes to rental prices and the economy? So, you know, housing starts are correlated on a go forward basis, right? Do you see the same dynamic when it comes to rental yeah, you know, pricing changing across the board. Yeah, and it's it's really more correlated with the kind of vacancy rates overall, which they're going to have function to do or, or trace back to both the combination of supply and the demand drivers. And so, and those and those drivers can really vary a lot by market. You know, in in a place like South Florida, they're they're pretty correlated with you know discretionary spending. You know, things like retail re, retail sales in other markets. It's more about you know in migration and population growth and jobs, and particularly that's the case in. And, and, you know, the Sunbelt, most of the Sunbelt markets. And so, you know, there, it's, it's, it's not, there's not one clear indicator, but certainly if you watch the, you know, where vacancies going, that's going to be, it's, it's, it's very much momentum based, you know, kind of phenomenon, right? When your vacancy rates are going down, you know, that's putting upward pressure on rents. When vacancy rates are going up, that's putting, putting downward pressure on, on rents. Yeah, sent me a note also saying that you want to touch on the big drop in starts uh, that's happened um, and what the long-term implications are. I'm, I'm assuming yeah. I'm going to say starts, just I'm talking about housing starts. But um, this has been sort of an interesting um, dynamic. I always, if you notice from my picture, I have lumber uh, on my right eye, right? Because <laughs> lumber is tied to and very correlated to housing starts by a risk-on, risk-off indicator. But um, talk about where uh, the direction of housing starts uh, is looking like it's going and why that could be a big deal. We'll be back after a quick break. 
Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, so I think I think again, I think we need to kind of appreciate the moment that we're in. This is a unique period where there's, uh, you know, there's so much this generational high in supply that, you know, personally, I just don't think we're going to see again. At least in my career, I think it'll be a few decades before we do. It's just this, you know, there, there's too many things that would have to happen to have too many dominoes have to fall to see another, you know, million units come back under construction and any time in the near future. So when you look at what's under construction right now, you know, we're we're at the point where in 23, we completed more units than we started. Starts were down. And in terms of multifamily, it starts down about 40% year over year. You know, we see that in our own data as we track individual projects across the country. The census data wasn't down quite as much, although they're 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 only sampling a small percentage of uh, permit holders and making some assumptions based on that. You look at other private data collectors like CoStar, they're showing similar trends as us. So multifamily starts really dropped off last year. You know, as debt got more expensive and all these in the in the apartment market softened quite a bit last year is that that made it harder to get deals moving forward. And so and so the point being with that is that there's still uh, ample construction, which is going to lead to a lot of supply completing this year. And so from a renter standpoint, that means it's going to be, uh, you know, the balance of power is shifted. You know, renters have more options for an owner operator standpoint. It means it's going to be a slog of a year. You're competing, you know, demands out there, but you're competing with more competitors for a piece of that demand and to get into fill fill units. There's a big focus on heads on beds, just getting occupancy full. And but you go forward from that, you know, starts are, you know, starts it, for an apartment building. It takes from depending on where you are inside the project, it takes 12 to 24 months for these projects to complete. And so I think the kind of the warning sign to watch for is 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 if starts continue to drop off, which we expect they will this year, then that's part again because the high cost of debt is is very much an availability of debt too. With I think some of the untargeted pressures on 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 banks who do a lot of the construction lending, that has been one of the kind of the collateral some of the collateral damage here. There's so there with fewer starts. That means by the time we get to second half of 25, 26, 27. There's probably going to be a lot less supply hitting the market. We may even see below average supply by that year, which would then lead to reduced vacancy and uh, more upward pressure on rents. Now, to be clear, I don't think it's going to be like 21 again. I don't think we're going to see double digit rent growth. But I do think, you know, by the time we get to those period, those years, you know, if the economy is in good shape, I think you could very, make a very plausible case that 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 rent growth is is you know at least back in the mid single digits again and and so that story can really shift quickly you know based on supply we're seeing the impact of supply now but we're going to see the we're going to see the inverse of this unless we figure out how to get more housing starts going again specifically specifically on the multifamily side so you just you were kind of going full circle on this point about you know you mentioned construction lending how does how does what's going on with the regional bank uh, impact that that side of things, because as I understand it, and I put out some material on this uh, in the yeah. lag report, right? There is a link between credit availability on, on the regional bank side uh, and and construction, right? It's most yeah. I think a lot of credit comes from the regional side, not from the big banks. Talk about that because I think that's a, that's a complicating factor too. 
Yeah, no, it really is again. I'm glad you, you brought that up. So just you know, just as a brief primer here, and in the apartment world, the multifamily, most of the debt comes from non-banks or not traditional banks. They banks only hold about a third of what we'd call stabilized multifamily debt. So that would be completed apartment buildings. Most of it is is you know the bigger pie would be Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, as well as you know life insurance companies and and other other entities like that. So, but when you look at construction. The GSCs, Fannie and Freddie, they don't do construction loans. That most of that, as you as you right as you rightly pointed out, comes from regional banks. And what's happening is that the banks are feeling they're getting pressured by regulators to cut down or to reduce exposure to commercial real estate. And some of that obviously is construction. And I think the problem, though, is that it's it's sort of what I've noticed from this. I've I've read some of these regulatory notes, and a lot of them I think do 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 a, a bit of an injustice to the industry, and don't really think through the implications because what they're doing is they're all lumping everything together. Right? You know, office and multifamily are all part of the same pool, and and even within multifamily, there's a I think rather shocking inability to draw. Uh, distinctions between different levels of risk. And I'll give you an example of this. I think it's probably the most important one is that you look at the signature bank portfolio, you look at the New York Community Bank uh, portfolio. A lot of that is um, rent stabilized apartments in New York City. And anybody who's had exposure to that segment of the market knows that those assets saw tremendous valuation loss due to a 2019 change in city laws related to how rents are set in rent stabilized apartment buildings. And so that really, when you, when you, when you reduce the value of those buildings, obviously that impacts the, the value of the loan as well. And that has created some of the challenges in, in addition to other, you know, kind of factors that are impacting New York city's rental market right now. So that, uh, that 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 segment of the market is undoubtedly riskier than other parts of the multifamily market. I mentioned earlier, like the Midwest being healthier and whatnot as well. So I think there's there's got to be a, a better way to draw some you know levels of nuance, or see see the gray, and not just make everything black and white that isn't black and white. And just one last comment on that too is when you look at the call reports the banks are required to file every quarter. You know, they they look at sectors. They do not look at geographies. And anybody in real estate knows that location. I mean, real estate's location, location, location. You know, location is everything. And the fact that banks are not reporting on location, only on sector, I, I think is 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 problematic and can lead to some some false conclusions. Let's talk about the the impact of all this when it comes to inflation, CPI, and then ultimately Fed policy. Because there's always lagged effects, right? I mean, <laughs> my handle is lead lag report. So I'm a big fan of thinking about yeah. the, what lead don't <laughs> lags. So, so okay, let, let's talk about just in general. How, uh, for those that are not aware, I mean, I'm aware of it, but talk about how big of a contributor housing shelter is to CPI and how the, the pricing in terms of that nationwide, right, impacts uh, what the Fed does. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's shelter is about a third of the CPI in terms of weighting. And back in 1981, there was a big change made to how we calculate inflation in the U.S. You know, peak inflation in the 1970s, that included home prices. And, 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 and so there was, that was contributed to some of the volatility. And so, you know, the economists and the policymakers back then said, hey, you know, this is more of a capital expense, not a, you know, day-to-day consumer expense. We're going to, 
take this out of the pie. And so they, they instead replaced it with a much higher weighting on rents, both with, you know, kind of two categories, rent of primary residence, which is your typical renters, and then owners of equivalent rent. And just as a brief note on that, a lot of people think owners of equivalent note or rent is just a survey of homeowners asking what they'd rent their houses for. And that's actually not true. That survey is is really about weighting the cost of shelter. And it's not a, that the answer is not necessarily directly, actually not necessarily, is actually not used to determine what the owner's rent actually is. That is, that rent number comes entirely from a survey of renters. And so because of that, you know, rent is arguably the most important variable in, in the largest category of CPI. And people kind of ignored this for a few decades just because, you know, the numbers had been intentionally quite stable. I mean, they were really designed to be stable. And so, and then we get into to, 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 to these last few years and they weren't. And so what's happening is that one reason it's stable is that the, the way we calculate rent and, and shelter and the CPI, it's, it's a lag indicator, as you alluded to. And so what they're trying to do is not calculate, it's not the change in rents that we report, you see in headlines, you know, just typically about the new lease rent. What they're doing is trying to calculate the change for all renters. But the problem with that is that most renters don't see their rent change, but let's say, you know, once a year. And so any incremental change in rent from month to month really doesn't move the needle very quickly. It takes a year or so to really feel that. And so there's about a one year lag. And this isn't, you know, this isn't just me saying this. There's been studies that kind of show this, not a secret. There's about a year lag between what we call, you know, the headline asking rent, the new lease rent, what someone paid to sign a lease. And uh, what we see in the CPI and the you know one last point on that, though, is if you think about it, you know, there's you know, it, it's not it's not indefensible why we do that. But it does create some implications uh, because it is the only major metric in CPI where, you know, the, the price you see today is not necessarily the price that you, that's being reflected in the CPI. And so because of that, too, whatever the Fed does, it can't really impact that number very fast. They can only impact really the new lease rent that's being, you know, that's the rent that's actually being set. You're not changing someone's rent who's already in place with, you know, nine more months left on their term. And then one more last thing, I already said this once, but the other thing people don't know about it is this survey only goes back to the same renters twice a year, every six months. And so even if their rent changed in month two, they're not going to ca- capture that until the sixth month. And so it adds further lag. So we know it's going to slow down. It's continuing to slow down. It's just going to take a while to get there. Right. As I'm hearing you, the idea basically is that it, it's it's the pretty much the biggest contributor, but also the 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 least uh, real time, obviously, because it's much more yes. detailed. Right. So, but obviously, the Federal Reserve knows that, which is why they look at absolutely e, right. But the um, but the 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 question then becomes going back to your earlier point. So you've got all of the supply, and maybe it coincides with a recession. That sounds like then you could actually see maybe conceivably, you know, some real downward pressure on CPI when that actually gets updated and maybe even some negative prints. Yeah, well, I, I will say that, again, because it's designed to be a fairly smooth metric, it's it's not going to go. I don't I, I don't think it would really go negative because it's also accounting for renewals and, you know, not to get too technical here, but renewals are typically priced below, you know, kind of below the the current market rent. And so the, the so you can still see a renewal to grow, you know, say 2%, even if your new lease rents are negative, because there's still a gap there in terms of the nominal rent. But but you're right. I think I think as you look over the next year, in fact, you know, even Sharon Powell pointed this out in his last press conference, he said, you know, that you know, every forecast is showing this will come down. They know it's going to come down just a matter of how fast. And so there's you know, a lot of other things could change. But, you know, you we know with pretty good certainty that that shelter is going to be less and less of an upward driver on inflation going forward. Yeah, I think that's important because that 
that does impact some of these narratives that you hear around. We could have another wave of inflation. Everyone seems to overlay the 70s to what's happened here. And, you know, the idea yep. that you might have another multi-year period. But I mean, I, I don't know how the 70s look. Maybe you do. But, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem like that that that's a likely uh, a parallel, just given the way the rental uh, and housing dynamics are today. Yeah, I, I would agree. And again, I, my, I, my expertise is more in the third of, of CPI that's specific to, to housing, not on the other two thirds. But, but, I, but I, I think, you know, again, back then in the 70s, people have to realize when they talk about this stuff that it's not the same methodology. I alluded to this earlier. The CPI is not calculated the same way today as it was in the 1970s. And it was really, again, designed to be more, to be more smooth and less, less volatile. And you can argue if that's right or wrong. That's just what it is. And so it's much, my point being that, you certainly could make a case there should be acceleration in other categories. But at the same time, there's 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 for sure going to be continued down down nearly for sure there'll be downward movement on on the shelter side of it. And so it's it would just be it'd be a more difficult scenario to see another significant. And I mean, we could go up a little bit, but it'd be more and more difficult to see a significant upward blip and upward uh, momentum in, in CPI today than it would have been in the 1970s. So we talked about the Midwest as having its moment. Let's talk about uh, parts of the country where things are starting to really turn around in a, in a much more negative way, sort of, you know, the opposite end of, of where the demand is, right? Where it's getting to be more shocking on the on the decline side. But what areas are you seeing that uh, are getting some real weakness? Yeah, it's it's really it's it's really all about where the supply is going. And so you look at some of these really hot markets and 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 and, uh, you know, places like Austin, Boise, uh, a lot of these, you know, kind of smaller Florida markets, you know, like places like Southwest Florida, Naples area, you know, these kind of spots, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, rents have come down quite significantly as vacancy has gone up. And it's interesting because typically you think about housing, you think like people think about homes that like, oh, people, homes aren't being sold or homes, uh, people aren't coming to the area anymore. And this is, again, it's really interesting because it's really not about demand. Like there's still good demand in these markets. Like there's still magnets for people. You know, it's it's normalized. It's not like the COVID, you know, crazy anymore where everyone's, you know, moving to Austin from the Bay Area. And and I say that somewhat tongue in cheek because obviously it was always probably a little more overstated than it was. But even on the downside, while it's slowed down, it's not like that funnel's been shut off completely. And so there's still there's still good demand. These spots are going to be fine in the long term. But in the short term, I mean, the supply numbers are just absolutely incredible. Uh, I mean, just huge numbers of new apartments being built in these markets. And and that's what's really pushing down these rents um, and and giving, like I said, renters a lot more options in the market these days. In many cases, you know, renters are able to, you know, pay a similar, maybe slightly more rent for a brand new apartment that's highly amenitized and and uh, maybe better located. And they're moving from an older property and maybe a lesser well-located area and they're paying similar rent. And so, you know, it's just it's it's a it, it's it's a great market for them, but it's it's obviously going to it's it's put in um, a lot of pressure on on uh, operators of these apartment buildings. But nothing that would be considered distressed, right, kind of across the board, right? And you're still getting residual demand that's putting a little bit of a floor even in that context. Yeah, yeah. When you think about true distress, you know, there's kind of a there's kind of a the the in, in the apartment industry, there's a general view that the real stress is going to be among those who, you know, bought at peak pricing with short term floating rate debt. So if you bought in you know 22, you know, with you know prices that are 30 percent higher, and you you know had a you know two or three year initial term 
an assumed much, much lower debt costs, you know, those groups. And then also on top of that, had an aggressive value add program, which meaning you'll put a, put a lot of, you're planning to put a lot of CapEx into the project to upgrade the the property and then raise the rent. Like those, those types of projects are very challenged. That's where I think we're going to see some real stress. But in, in generally speaking, I think this is more a year of stress than distress. I want to go back to rental housing is essential and misunderstood and we need more of it because you're doing this obviously for a living, for a career, and you've got a lot of research. What are some of the things that people often get wrong about rental housing that drive you absolutely crazy when you hear <laughs> them say that? Well, thank you for that question. I love that question. You know, I think, I think one thing, just to the way of starting this, is that, yeah, I mean, I was probably just as ignorant as anybody else on this topic when I got into it. And, and just to give you kind of a brief background, you know, I, I, I took a job as a research analyst back in 2009 doing this stuff really just because I needed a job. And it was 2009. You could be you a know, beggars couldn't be choosers. And so I learned a lot along the way. And, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people would think is that people rent because they have to, not because they want to. And, and, you know, every renter is a wannabe homeowner, not just eventually, but right now. And, you know, we look at the landscape, I mean, you think about who lives in, and I'm just gonna focus on apartments for, for a moment here. You know, these are generally people who are in a life stage of, of renting that the median apartment renter is 32 years old. And so you have, you know, 10, tens of you know, millions of them who are in their twenties. They're not in a life stage to buying a house, even if they want to. You know, we commissioned a survey uh, last year. It was you know legit consumer research group, group called the Center for Generational Kinetics. This was this is one. This is not some you know survey monkey poll. It was you know way to the census demographics, all that kind of stuff. And it, it was really interesting. It showed us. Uh, I just pulled this up so I can share you some stats here. It showed that sixty nine percent of renters say there's unfair stigma towards renters and renting in America. Seventy two percent say that older generations view renters more negatively than they view homeowners. So they feel that bias. You know, I feel like a lot of times, especially on X slash Twitter, you know, I see a lot of, you know, kind of anti-rental, you know, bias that's really, you know, kind of anti-renter. It's like, you know, the, like we sometimes treat renters like second class citizens and renters feel that and they don't like it. And 63% of renters in the survey said that they rent for reasons other than not being able to afford to buy a house. Like, you know, there's again, life stage and lifestyle reasons for doing that. And some of them may be eventual homeowners, but not yet. And Half of renters uh, and multi-family renters say that renting gives them more financial freedom. And you could debate that, say they're wrong, and that's totally fine. That's how they feel. And personally, I think some of them are going to change their minds in 10 years <laughs> and be homeowners. But from where they are right now, that's that they, that's that's their perception, especially if they want to, if they value flexibility and move in different places. And then a couple, other, couple stats, stats I think is really important is in the survey, we found 72% of renters said they have a positive relationship with their property managers. And we all hear about the 28%. And then, you know, there's definitely, you know, we all see the headlines. I mean, there's definitely some crazy landlords out there. There's some crazy renters out there, but they're the, they're the exceptions to the rule. And, and so, you know, by and large, it's not this adversarial relationship that gets portrayed all the time. And I think that's another just kind of really important fact to understand is, in fact, you know, apartment companies out there and single family rental companies, they track reputation, like reputation is a, is a big thing that, that is, 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 is a big kind of metric that people, that they, these groups watch and, they don't want to have bad reputations and they work to try to have a good reputation. And so, and, and so that's, I think another one that, that is just really important. So, you know, I could go on and on with this stuff. I think there's, I could, you know, sometimes I think I need to write a, write, write a book, not that I ever will on just the, the all the myths associated with rental housing and renters, but those are just a few of my favorites to start with. Yeah. And I'm going to assume that maybe one of the other myths is that, you know, depending on who's in the white house, that'll change dynamics when it comes to rental price trends. None of that really holds true. I think historically. 
Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, you, the it's rent rent is really a function of supply and demand. I think there's other factors that the White House can control. You know, I I think, uh, but but really a lot of it's supply driven. And I think one thing that you know this current White House is proposed just hasn't gotten momentum, unfortunately is substantially increasing the supply of affordable housing in the U.S. And uh, that's something that can really move the needle, but have not been able to get congressional support for that. Jay, for those who want to track more of your thoughts, more of your work and see some of your research, where would you point them to? Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, definitely follow me here on X at Jay Parsons. I'm also actively posting on on LinkedIn as well. So you could find me either one of those spots. And and yeah, always happy to, to you know, to set up questions my way on the social media. I'm happy to answer what I can too. Again, folks, this is going to be an edited podcast on Lee Lag Live. Going to wrap it up here. Jay, really do appreciate the insights. I, I rarely do spaces on this side of the of the property housing end of things, the rentals, obviously, but this was, to me at least was very educational. So thank you for, for joining here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, buddy. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.